And our text this morning, our passage is taken from Romans chapter 3. We'll look at the first 20 verses in Romans 3. We won't go all the way through the chapter, but we'll take the first large chunk of it. So Romans 3, if you have your Bibles, we'll look at these verses here in just a minute. Young Christians, young theologians, let's start with you. This is kind of a tricky question to start with this morning. How should we approach Jesus, do you think? Should we come to Jesus with empty hands or full hands? You could answer it a couple of different ways. So do your best. Should we come to Jesus with empty hands or with full hands? And parents, as you're talking with your children this afternoon or this week, listen for them to be expressing an intuitive, a felt understanding of justification, not just a technical understanding. So they could seriously answer this a couple of different ways. And we're interested in the same thing for ourselves, by the way. Listen to me. We are not teaching to the test, and we never teach to the test. We criticize schools for it, so let's be fair. Let's criticize ourselves for it as well. I don't care so much that you have a technical definition of justification. I want you to have an intuitive, a felt, urgent understanding of justification. And that's what Paul's giving to us in this part of the letter. This is the gospel of Jesus in the words of Paul, the letter writer and the apostle. Then what advantage has the Jew or what's the value of circumcision? Much in every way to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true Though everyone were a liar, for as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if... Through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory. Why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying? Their condemnation is just. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace. They have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Oh Lord Jesus, we just sang our own story. We lay fast bound in sin in nature's night until you broke into our prison cell and opened our eyes 
and made our hearts alive with the good news of freedom and release in Jesus the Savior. And our chains fell off and our hearts were made free. And still, Lord, we bind ourselves with our sin. We act as if none of this had ever happened. The crucifixion did not settle our account with God. And the rising of Jesus did not truly release us and deliver us. And so often we return to the old chains and we try to wear them again. Now we ask you to give us a full and thorough understanding of the justification that is ours in Jesus for our freedom and the glory of God and our enjoyment of the Savior. Give to us your spirit to hear and to see and to perceive, to believe and to put to work and to action in our own lives. Give to us your gospel in all of these ways. And as always, we will give you thanks. We ask all of this in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Would you be seated? You may not have noticed it, but we've been singing about slavery all morning. You can go back through the hymns that we've sung so far, and you can pick out little places where slavery is the topic of our worship and praise. And the thing about slavery is you never see it until it's too late. When it's finally your turn to see it up close, you're too close. I bought a new piece of exercise equipment a couple of weeks ago. Wasn't terribly expensive. Doesn't take up a lot of room. It doesn't take up a whole room in the house or a large chunk of the floor in the garage. It's very portable. You can use it anywhere. In fact, most of the time I use it in my backyard, but it came in the mail one day, and I came home and found the box waiting for me, and I tore into it like a little kid on Christmas morning, got it all out, read the instructions, put it together, gave it a test run. And a few minutes later, I chased after Jennifer in another part of the house, and I was breathless, and I said, this thing is great, this is going to work. And Jennifer mocked me. And she said, oh, is this going to take you to the next level of your workout? And I said, what is this? You're going to give me trouble for this now? You're going to bust my chops for this? She said, oh, I'm just enjoying your midlife crisis from a comfortable distance. Ah, I see how this is going to go now. I see what you're doing. Let's talk about my midlife crisis for a minute. By the way, I admit I have one. I'm in one. But my midlife crisis isn't buying a motorcycle or a boat or a sports car. It's not a blonde. My midlife crisis is exercise. That's pretty good as far as midlife crises go. I think this is a midlife crisis you can get all the way behind, Jennifer. You ought to be my cheerleader in my midlife crisis. Yay, midlife team. Go. But maybe Jennifer had a point. And maybe all she was really asking was, just out of curiosity, how enslaved are you to this thing? 
That's what Paul is putting before us in this chapter. How enslaved are you? Do you even know? Paul, in the way he writes this part of the letter, is chiding us. He's not terribly tender. It's written as a dialogue, and it's argumentative. Paul says, let me guess, you think you're barely enslaved. You think you can leave your imprisonment at any time. Well, listen, no one is ever a little enslaved. You are held hostage. And by the way, in case you miss the mention of slavery, it's in verse 9. We put this charge to ourselves, Paul says. Everyone, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. That two-word phrase is very important. It's the first mention of sin slavery in Paul's letter to the Romans. You are under sin, under its power, under the mastery of sin, under its dominion and ownership. And he really extrapolates it in verses 10 through 12. None is righteous, not even one. In all the world, in all of history, no person has ever been righteous in God's eyes. How many people do you think have lived in the world? Billions upon billions, and not even one of us has been able to stand before God and say, I've pleased you. My life is a pleasing aroma to you because of the way I've lived. I've done everything that satisfies you. Not one can stand before God and say that, Paul says. Then there's verse 11. No one understands, no one even seeks for God on his or her own. Can't say it more clearly than that. God must take hold of us and turn us to himself And that was week one in Romans. We are saved by the strong, won't take no for an answer calling of Jesus. What what we know as effectual or effective calling. The calling of Jesus to belong to him that sinners are desperate to hear and can't deny when it comes to us. And then in verse 12, all have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. No one does the good that impresses God. No one ever does the good that God would do. What resembles what he would do in the way he would do it for the reasons he would do it. No one does good with his touch and his emphasis. Why? Because we're enslaved to our sin. I have a child who can talk about slavery better than anyone else I know. Almost as good as Paul himself. And sometimes when I talk to her about her sin, I'll say, why do you do it? And she'll say, I don't know. I just can't help it. Sometimes she'll say it even more strongly than that. She'll say, Because I want to. And I know it's wrong, but I still want to. I guess I love my sin. Now, that's beautiful because it's true. And I wish more adults would speak that beautifully and that truthfully. I wish more of us who are spiritually mature would be able to talk about our sin like that. But we have reasons for our sin, don't we? We, we have exemptions that we concoct. We have circumstantial excuses and outright lies that we not only tell ourselves, but we believe them whenever we speak of our sin. And Paul cuts right through it 
And he cuts us off and he says, look, let's talk about your sin. You need to see it for what it is. It may be confusing that Paul starts the chapter by talking about Jewishness. Reaching back into the previous chapter where we heard that the law of God judges everyone and no one ever measures up to the law. No one. Our law keeping is broken. We have warped and twisted, distorted the law and not used it as it was intended to be used. And now Paul is anticipating an argument. So what good is it to be Jewish then? But Paul doesn't give up any ground. He says, we Jews had a head start. We Jews had the law of God, the oracles of God, the spoken decrees of God in verse 3. And if you jump all the way down to the end of this section at verse 20, Paul says... Here's the reason we were given the law. It gives us a knowledge of our sin. The law tells us how completely sinful we are. We just heard about it from Leviticus. Can't even bring grain offerings. Something as simple as offering grain to the living God. And there are all these rules attached to it to show us how terribly our lives are a mixture of praise and sin. Worship and unrighteousness. The law is meant to show us how completely sinful we are, how far from holy we are. The law tells us you're slaves. It jolts our hearts alive. That's the first part of Paul's proclamation here. The gospel tells us that we're slaves to our sin. And we need to be told because we wouldn't hear it otherwise. Look how entirely blind to it we are until Jesus mercifully opens our eyes. Our slaved hearts try to hide and they come up with this argument. If our faithlessness shows the faithfulness of God more clearly, then why shouldn't we just continue in it? Why can't we just have our faithlessness? Why not go deeper into our unfaithfulness? If our unrighteousness shows how righteous God is, then we should practice our unrighteousness. And God shouldn't judge us with his wrath. He should thank us. We're doing him a favor. Paul says, that's ridiculous. That's a loophole. That's a way to turn it around on the holy, gracious God. That's a way to get away with something. That's not how love works. That's not worship. Sin in any thought or emotion or behavior or argument or poor excuse. It it pushes God away and says, you are not good and I shouldn't look like you in your goodness. And I shouldn't have to serve your glory. These thoughts and these emotions and these behaviors in us are our dungeon and our chains and our captors. But here's what's really horrifying in what Paul has written for us here. We are enslaved to our sin, but what's worse is we have a severe case of Stockholm Syndrome. Where we have this disorder in which kidnapped victims actually become emotionally attached to their captors. Why didn't 
J.C. Lee Duggard run away from her kidnapper. He picked her up on a bus stop when she was 11 years old, and he held her for 18 years, but he didn't keep her under lock and key. She lived in a shack out behind his house. But he let her go to the birthday parties of the neighbor's kids all over the block. She worked in his print shop, running the cash register and the counter. There were many times where her kidnapper was in the back room, and she was alone out front. Why did she never try to escape? But what about Elizabeth Smart? Back in 2002, she peaceably and willingly traveled with her captors for nine months. Never tried to run. Or Patty Hearst. She helped her kidnappers rob a bank. Held up a bank with the Symbionese Liberation Army. They put an automatic weapon in her hands. Why didn't she turn against them? There's no answer to the question other than to simply restate the same question very personally. Why do you live so willingly with your captor? You don't try to run. You don't try to escape. And even more, Paul says, you take the stand in defense of your sin. And you say things like this, you don't understand my sin. It isn't really that bad. You don't know it like I do. In fact, it's good. I I know at the end of the day, it's wrong, but it's still useful. He gives us another example of it in verse 7. If through my lie, God's truth abounds, he's glorified, right? Isn't my sin glorifying to God? Should I really be condemned? I should be commended. And Paul says, you have it bad. That's slave talk. So, out of necessity, his argument is designed to let us feel the weight of our chains. Starting in verse 13. Under sin, your mouth is an open grave. No life, no truth come out of you. Your tongues are tools of deceit. Your words have venom, the venom of asps in them. Not the medicine of the Savior's redemption, Your sinful words are like snake bites. Your mouths are full of curses and bitterness. Another allusion to our mouths and throats like gulping graves. And then in verse 15. Under sin, your feet are swift to shed blood. You run to do harm and to bring hurt to others. Not to heal and serve. And the paths that you're quick to run down are the road of ruin and misery, not the way of Messiah's peace and comfort and reconciliation. And then verse 18, under sin, there's no fear of God before your eyes. You're brash and disrespectful toward God. You you put yourself above him and judge him and count him as lower, less than you. And then verse 20, the law should show you how sinful you are in every part, but you're so blind. You even defend it. You make yourself a sin, a, a friend to the sin that hates you and hates others and even hates your God. You are enslaved. But the gospel wouldn't be the gospel if it only told us of our slavery. The gospel is good news because it opens our eyes to our horrible imprisonment. But then it turns our hearts when it shows us how much we love our imprisonment 
And then finally, it smashes through our chains in the work of Jesus. The gospel is the gospel because Jesus makes it his eternal work to do what the Father has always wanted, always sought, to save us from slavery to sin. What the Father wants and what Jesus was appointed to do is hinted at in verse 20. To make us justified in his sight. Justification is the linchpin of our belief. It's what makes us Christians. And it looks like this. We come to Jesus with our arms full, loaded down, heaped up with all of the ways we love our slavery. But there's there's something that He's done in us. And at the same time, while we love our slavery, we want to be released from it as well. We're tired of living under it. And so Jesus empties our arms and he brings all of those things into himself. And he'll carry them now. He signs his name to our love of our slavery. And he'll wear the end and the effect of our slavery now. And he fills our empty arms with all the ways he has perfectly believed perfectly loved, perfectly obeyed the Father. He trades us our slavery for His beautiful, glorious sonship. Now look, this verse reaches all the way back to chapter 1 in verses 16 and 17. There's a righteousness from faith and for faith. The righteous shall live by faith. Slaves can't unslave themselves, Paul's saying. They can't law their way out of slavery. They have to be rescued. And by faith in Jesus, who empties our arms and fills them again, by faith in Jesus, we're righteous. When God the Father looks at us, He sees us wearing the breathtaking works of Jesus, not limping along, lumbering along under the weight of our chosen chains. After all, Jesus was born in our flesh to live differently in our flesh, to give us a different experience in our flesh. Jesus was born to make himself the hopeful living announcement, your slavery is about to end. Your slavery is coming to an end. Jesus gave himself up to be nailed to the cross, literally wrapped himself in the chains of our sin, strangled himself with the chains of our sins to make himself the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies. And the captives will be set free. The crucified Jesus is our heart-pounding, pulse-racing, narrow-but-sure escape from slavery to sin. And Jesus threw off our heavy chains in His rising. And He strolled out of the tomb with ease as the living proclamation for those who believe, the living assurance for those who believe there are no chains left that can hold you now. Not a single chain can tie you up and bind you now. Justification is the strong declaration that echoes through the cosmos. The entire cosmos has to hear it and bow before it and agree to it. By the righteousness of faith, that is, faith in the righteous works of Jesus the Son, you are no longer slaves 
And with that, you should feel your heaviest chains loosen and slip. If we would just settle into the gospel in our songs. Not just find the tune and try to keep time. But if we would just inhabit the words of our songs. If we would meditate on Christ and His justification and our liberated status under it. How He sees us and speaks of us and how we should see and speak of ourselves. If we would only fight against our sins in prayer using His incarnate, crucified, risen strength against our sins as we fight them in prayer. If we would preach to our own hearts the bottomless message of the gospel fighting against our slavery and winning. If only we would not just endure sermons or judge sermons, but bring the fruit of them out in our lives. If we would use our baptism and the bread and the wine to stir ourselves to the Savior's affections, if only we would exercise the obedience of faith, that means obeying by believing and believing by obeying. If we would just do these things, every day for us would be like stepping out of our chains. Just think of the rest of today with you leaving your rusty cutting chains behind. Picture a tomorrow where you wake up and you don't dress yourself in your old, comfortably tormenting chains. And don't undersell your justified freedom. It's too far, it's far too valuable. It's far too useful a thing you've been given in your justified freedom. Don't take it for granted. Don't assume that you'll, you'll be able to pick it up and use it when it's needed. You need it now. You need it always. Because justified and free, you've been given a rare gift. You've been given a stronger view of your sin. And now, we don't need to underestimate our sin or shrug at it. And even though it's hard for us to talk like this, we could use the verses that Paul writes here to describe our sin. We could say, my sin looks like this and my sin feels like this, so I'm not going to pretend that it's something less. Our eyes have been opened, our hearts have been awakened, and we can see our sin clearly, and we can see what it does. Our sin makes us think, we rule it, and it rules us. We, we know our sin's cruelty. Our sin is our Pharaoh forcing us to make his awful mud bricks, driving us to do his work. And then we find that all this time our sin has been making us build the walls of our own prisons. And we know what it costs the justifier to break us loose. And in love, he paid the cost. Why? Would we ever leave the one who has redeemed us and bought us out to go back to making sin's bricks and building our dungeon walls? 
A stronger view of your sin should mean you won't flirt with it anymore. You won't play games with it anymore. And you won't go willingly with your sin and you won't go without a fight. And all you have to use in flexing your freedom over the magnetism of slavery is repentance. Repent when your sin looks attractive. Repent when your sin sounds convincing. Repent when your heart longs for it. Repent when your body wants to reach for it. Repent when it's too late. And you've gone back to the darkness as a reflex because it's familiar and it's comfortable and it's easier than holiness. In repentance, the strength of the incarnation and the strength of the cross and the strength of the resurrection are yours and they were each done to cut your chains. Justified and free, we have a stronger language to use for ourselves. Part of the reason we don't see ourselves properly is because we don't talk about ourselves properly. This is the problem with counseling attached to the church and counseling inside the church. We're ending up in the wrong place because we're not using the right language to begin with. And according to what Paul gives us here, we should not say, I'm a slave. That doesn't fit anymore. The addiction talk isn't going to work anymore. We're not slaves anymore. What we should say is, I was a slave to my sin. On the other hand, we shouldn't say that we don't still face danger and we don't sometimes still give ourselves over to our sin. We act like slaves and we wrap ourselves back in the old slavery. But we should learn how to say, I'm learning to be free. I'm a former slave learning the freedom of Christ. If we begin to learn to speak that way about ourselves, and we begin to learn to speak that way to each other, it will keep us out of blindness and stupidity and denial and law-ishness, bad uses of the law, and it will keep us living in the gospel of Christ's justification continually shedding the chains of habit. Because we're justified and free, we have been given a stronger desire and zeal for evangelism. Don't slaves who have been bought into freedom have compassion for those who are still chained up? Don't slaves who have been set free have something to say to those who can't even see their chains? Don't slaves who have been released have a deep joy in seeing other slaves emancipated? Have we forgotten our chains? Have we forgotten so quickly what our chains feel like and what they do to us? the more closely we live to our justification, remembering our chains and rejoicing that Jesus has broken them and He's not willing for us to bind ourselves with them again, the more we live closely to our justification, the more openly and boldly evangelistic we will be. 
Now, some won't want the freedom you hold out, and some will prefer to live in their chains, and they'll even applaud others who choose chains along with them. But some will be eager to leave in the exodus. Some will be eager for the leaving. Lead them out through Christ. You are former slaves, the once chained ones. You have the message of joy and hope to carry to those who are still in captivity. And the closer you live to the justification of Jesus, the more desperate you should feel yourself becoming to proclaim it. Skeptics, has this passage said anything to you? Have you seen yourself in these verses? Maybe heard your name whispered and thought, that's me, those those verses are describing me. Are you in chains? And are you tired of wearing them and being locked in your sin? And are you ready for a new birth and a new life? Then say, Jesus, I have made myself a slave to my sin. Jesus, break me free. And if you can't say those words by yourself, come find me. I'll say them with you. We'll say them together. Theodore Sedgwick was a jurist in the early days in America, and he was the Speaker of the House of Representatives from 1799 to 1802. And when he was a young man, he bought a slave woman whose name was Mumbet. One day, Mumbet heard the Declaration of Independence read out at a town meeting, and she went home to ask Sedgwick about what she heard. And she said, Sir, that paper said, we're all born equal and we all have the right to be free. Is that true? Lots of folks would have tried to manipulate the situation, but Sedgwick didn't. And he said, Yes, Mumbit, that's true. And he was so moved by the question that Sedgwick himself filed the lawsuit for Mumbit to be granted her freedom. He entered the suit on her behalf. Sedgwick won the freedom of his own slave. And Mumbit lived the rest of her life as a member of the Sedgwick family. Not a servant. A sister. Jesus reads out to us the gospel of his intended freedom. And he says to us, ask me to file the suit. Just ask me to file the suit. And he wins our irreversible release. And the best part of it all is that we get to spend the rest of our freedom on him. We get to spend the rest of our freedom with Him. Amen. Lord Jesus, too often we remember our old slavery and like the Israelites in the wilderness, we want to go back to it. There's something comfortable and familiar 
about not having to trust the living God as He leads us in holiness and righteousness and grace and truth is something much more simple in serving Pharaoh and making his bricks. That you have lived and died and risen to cut our chains so that we can spend our freedom on you and spend our freedom in and with you. Now, Lord, help us to live up to our inheritance. Help us to grow up into our inheritance. No longer slaves because of what Jesus has done. So help us to live like sons and daughters. Help us to live in the joy of the gospel, the fruitfulness of the gospel. And help us to leave the old dead stickedness, the old thorniness, the chains and imprisonment of our slavery. Give us an existence in which every day we're feeling and experiencing what it is in the justification of Jesus to step out of our chains and to leave them behind again. And for those who are still truly slaves, cut them free. Let them join us in the delights of the Son. For those who are blind, open their eyes. Let them see what Paul is giving to us in the name of Jesus in this passage. Those whose eyes are being opened, open them all the way. Take the fogginess out of them and breathe life into their hearts. Allow them to know that in Jesus we are truly made alive. Give to us these things. And now, Lord Jesus, tell us again about how we are not slaves anymore. We are the freed sons and daughters of the living God. Tell us with bread and tell us with wine. Tell us unmistakably. This is the Ebenezer, the monument that's been raised for us to remind us of the expensive and lavish price that the justifier has paid in love for us. And eating and drinking, bind our hearts to your love and your grace. Keep them from wandering away, wandering back to Egypt to live in slavery again. Give us these things spiritually in this bread and this wine. And we will have feasted truly on the grace of Jesus. No mere memorial service but the gospel given to us again that we may wear it and thrive in it. Do all of this for us and we will give you thanks.